Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. This week on Product Love, I sat down with Wall Street best-selling author Nir Eyal. You probably know Nir from his book, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, but he also has a new book out now called Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. So as you might guess, we talked about distraction, specifically how product managers can limit their distractions, right? Product managers wear all sorts of hats and their role encompasses many functions. It's inevitable because of all that, that they're pulled in many directions. So the big question is, how can they focus with all the noise and distractions? One method Nier suggests is restructuring and minimizing our meetings. Meetings should only be held if they're consensus meetings, where everyone is getting together to reach an agreement and a decision. Other types of meetings, like status meetings or brainstorming, maybe can be handled in different ways. In fact, research shows that brainstorming is best done by yourself or with one other person because large-scale brainstorming meetings are usually dictated and driven by the loudest person in the room. So this all got me to thinking about how PMs can spend their time. They're in all sorts of cross-functional meetings today. So how do they carve out that time to truly enter a space and a mindset where they can deeply reflect and work? And like Nira suggests, one way to do this is to try to implement focused meetings with agendas and meeting briefs. They can use these to try to facilitate meetings that prompt decision-making. And I think that's important. We want these meetings that are prompting decision-making. And if they do this, this is one way they can save time because thinking and reflecting by yourself really has become a scarce commodity, but as product leaders, it's one we definitely all need. So let me know, how do you set time for yourself to think? How do you make the most of all your meetings? Reach out to me at ebodak at pendo.io or ebodak on Twitter. So welcome lovers of product. Today I'm here with Nir Eyal. For those of you who don't know Nir, we're going to have him give a little quick overview. Sure, yeah. So my name is Nir Eyal. I am a behavioral designer. I utilize consumer psychology in product design to help people form healthy habits with their products. And I also help people change their behaviors when it comes to how they interact with these products. So I help product designers build engaging products and services and also help folks decide on uh, what, what a healthy relationship with these various products and services would be for them. Awesome. Well, thank you. So now we have a new book coming out yeah. soon, probably right around the same time this podcast goes live. Talk to me about what, what inspired you to write Indistractable. Yeah, so Indistractable is about how to control your attention and choose your life. And I really do believe that there will be a bifurcation between people who let their attention and their lives be controlled and, let's face it, manipulated by others and those who decide that they are indistractable. They do what they say they're going to do. And this is not one of these anti-technology books. I love technology. I use it every day. And, and there's no way I could grow my business, just like many people listening here today. Uh, you know, these things, I believe that uh, these technologies are wonderful if we know how to make sure we get the best out of them without letting them get the best of us. So Indistractable is a 
pro-human, pro-tech book. It's not one of these things that says, you know, go on a digital detox or throw away your iPhone. That's, that's ridiculous. So it's, it's, a, it's very practical, a lot of strategies, but also a lot of tactics on how we can make sure that we manage all sorts of distraction, that distraction is, in fact, nothing new. It's been around for a very, very long time, and uh, it's not just confined to our technology. Everything can be a distraction if it's not what you plan to do with your time. So there's a, a big chunk of the book is about how individuals can become indistractable, uh, and then the, the remaining half of the book is about how we can help others or our environments become indistractable. So there's a whole big section about how to make an indistractable workplace. Right? Work is a very common cause of distraction in our day-to-day lives. How to raise indistractable kids, how to have indistractable relationships, even how to have an indistractable sex life. Awesome. So talk to me about the research journey. What's something that shocked you or surprised you yeah. when you were researching for the book? So a few things. I mean, I, I came to this project for the same reason I come to all of my book writing projects, which is a personal problem. And that's where I start. Uh, my friend Gretchen Rubin says that research is me search. And that's definitely the case with me. I wrote Hooked because I couldn't find a book on how to build habit-forming technology. And I, I wrote Indistractable because I found that I was becoming distracted a lot. And I couldn't figure out why, even though I knew the deeper psychology of how these products are built. So uh, that's where I started you know, doing this research. And uh, one of the most important revelations I had in the process of writing this book was this understanding that all of our behavior is, in fact, driven by a desire to escape discomfort. And that's not the way most people think of motivation. Most people think about motivation, they think it's about carrots and sticks, right? The pursuit of pleasure, the avoidance of pain. Neurologically speaking, that's not true. It's pain all the way down. It's called a homeostatic response. When we feel uncomfortable in some way, our brain prompts us to act to fix that discomfort. And so if you think about, you know, when you're cold, you put on a jacket. When you're hot, you take it off. Those are physiological sensations, but the same rules apply to psychological sensations. So when we feel lonely, we check Facebook. When we're uncertain, we Google. When we're bored, we check stock prices, sports scores, the news, Twitter, Pinterest. I mean, the list goes on and on. And so that means that if all behavior is prompted by a desire to escape discomfort, that means that time management is pain management. And that's not something I saw written in other self help books. You know, a lot of them just give you the tactics for what to do. But the problem isn't that we don't know what to do. We essentially do know what to do, right? We know that if you want to be healthy and have a svelte body, then you have to eat right and exercise. But we don't do it. We know that if you want to have good relationships, you have to be fully present with people you love. Uh, but we find ourselves distracted. Uh, we know that if you want to be great at your job, you have to actually do the work, especially the hard stuff. And yet we find ourselves putzing around on email or Slack channels or whatever. Why don't we do what we say we're going to do? And so the first reason, the, the place we have to start, is with what I call these internal triggers, these uncomfortable emotional states that prompt us to either traction or the opposite of traction, doing things that you want to do, the opposite of traction is distraction. So they can move you either way. And so the idea here is to master your internal triggers so they lead you to traction and not to distraction. Awesome. So talk to me about how this can be applied and what Indistractable can teach the product manager. Yeah, so you know the techniques in the book, I can teach people how to become indistractable themselves, but we need to understand that we work in a context. We work inside companies. And these companies, turns out, if they have the wrong kind of culture, 
cause pain, like literally cause psychological discomfort. In fact, there's a confluence of two factors in my, that, that I discovered in the course of researching this book that literally cause anxiety and depression disorder at work. And it's this confluence of a work environment with high expectations and low control. And when you work in a culture that perpetuates a high expectation, low control culture, you're miserable, right? And you, what do you do when you feel bad, when you feel uncomfortable, when you feel depressed and anxious? You look for relief. You look for something to bring you back into balance. So what do we do? We strive for control. How do we strive for control? We send more emails. We call more meetings. We distract ourselves and others to try and grasp for a greater sense of agency and control. So this blew my mind that actually technology at work is not the source of distraction. That in fact, distraction at work is a symptom of a dysfunctional workplace culture. And I'll give you evidence for this. If you think about Slack, right? Slack is one of these tools or a substitute any group chat app that people say is super distracting. Oh, it's Slack is always you know, pinging and digging me and I can't get anything done because my, you know, I constantly have to be on these group chat channels with Slack. But if, you, if that's true, if it's the technology here that's the culprit, then shouldn't the people who work at Slack and use it more than anybody else on earth, shouldn't those people be the most distracted people on earth? No, they're not. Actually, Slack doesn't have this problem. If you go to Slack headquarters at six o'clock, Parking lot's empty. Everybody's gone. On nights and weekends, nobody's using Slack at Slack. Why? Isn't it the technology that's making everybody so distracted? No. It's about a sick workplace culture that keeps everybody constantly checking and pecking at their devices. And without fixing that culture, technology just makes the problem worse. And so what I discovered and why this is so relevant to product managers out there, any, any manager out there, is that unless you have three factors in your workplace, you will always have distraction. And these three things that you need to do to fix your workplace culture is to A, make sure that we have an environment that provides psychological safety, where people can raise concerns, they can raise their problems without fear of getting fired. Two, you need to have a forum for people to air these concerns, right? You need to provide a place for people to talk about their problems because look, distraction is just one other problem among many, many problems that every organization, every family has their problems. Where can family members, organization members air their concerns? You have to have a place for them to do this. And C, the third criteria here, is that leadership needs to exemplify what it means to be indistractable. And so when you look at companies like Slack, they embody this. They give people psychological safety. They give them a place to air concerns without fear of retribution. And management exemplifies what it means to be indistractable. And so there's a few companies I profile in the book along with Slack. BCG is another one of these companies, Boston Consulting Group, that actually used to be a high distraction culture that actually switched now and became a culture that's much more healthy, much less toxic. And not only are people reporting that they're less distracted, they do better work, they also increase employee retention and they improved the output that they provide their clients. Because now, if you feel safe about talking about this problem of distraction, if people feel psychological safety talking about that problem, guess what? They can talk about all kinds of other problems. Hey, boss, here's what's going wrong with this client, or here's where we can fix this thing that, that's going wrong. Whereas before, these companies that have a closed culture that is not psychologically safe, that's where you get all kinds of problems, including distraction. So that, that makes me think, too, about, you know, product managers and how they wear all these different hats. 
you know, it's a role that encompasses a lot of different job functions. So is part of distraction balancing different things like that? Is that, I mean, I, I feel that that always leads to distraction. How do you, how do you advise someone like a PM that's balancing different, you know, areas of their job that are in a lot of cases are distinctly different? Yeah. You know, there is a simple solution that we don't implement that drives me nuts. And that is that we have somehow all bought into this myth of the to-do list that if I tell you what I want you to get done, that you'll just go out and do it. And we couch this in the, with the veneer of personal responsibility. I don't need to babysit you. You know what to do. Here's what needs to get done. Okay, so just do it. And I think that's a trick. It's a trick because it comes under the veneer of, well, you're a grown adult. I don't need to, I don't, you know, I don't need to micromanage you. And we let people do the thing that they have all the, do all the things they need to do. The problem is we do this without considering a hugely important factor, which is if we are going to give people the expectation of outputs, right? Here's all the things I want you to do, all the output that's required from your work. We also have to discuss the input. What's the input for a knowledge worker? Time. We do not synchronize our calendars. This is the source of 90% of our problems when it comes to overloaded, overworked, and distracted employees. What I recommend we do is called schedule syncing. That we sit down for 15 minutes once a week with our colleagues, with our teammates, and we say, here's not only the output of what I want to get done this week, here's where I'm going to do it. Here's the time spot, and here's what in invariably happens. There's stuff I couldn't fit in the calendar. When you take this extra step to not only understand, okay, what's in the backlog, what do I need to get done, but actually estimate where in my day I'm going to get this stuff done, what almost always happens is there's not enough time, right? Are we surprised every day when we say, oh my God, I didn't get everything done because you didn't allow enough time for it. The problem is if we don't get into this routine of synchronizing our calendars with our stakeholders, then we get embarrassed and say, oh, I didn't get everything done today that I said I would get done, and now I can't talk to my boss about it because I signed off and I'm going to do all this stuff. But we miss the critical step of actually figuring out, hey, is there enough time in my day to actually do this stuff? And if not, what do I prioritize? So this problem of prioritization is everywhere. That We just throw stuff at people and say, get all this stuff done, and we don't tell them you know, what should slip? What's okay to slip from week to week? And so lots of stuff slips and yet we feel embarrassed about talking about it, especially if you, you add in this uh, psychological safety component where people don't feel safe at work to raise their hands and say, oh, you know, this is too much or I don't have time for this. And so here's what happens. We work nights and weekends. And so we pay for it. Our kids pay for it. Our families pay for it. Our communities pay for it. We don't have time to do all the stuff that we should be doing with people we love. Uh, we don't work out. We don't spend time investing in ourselves because we're embarrassed that we didn't have enough time to do work, that we didn't budget properly with our colleagues. So that schedule syncing is critically important. Now, how often you do that has to do with how often your schedule changes. Most people find that they can sit down for 15 minutes a week with their colleagues, their boss, and say, okay, here's my plan for the week. Here's my schedule. You see there? Here's my template. I'll actually give you a, a link in the show notes. I built a tool that helps people do exactly this, this little very easy to build schedule template they can use. It's much easier to do than working with a, a Google calendar. And we, every week, we just look at that calendar, we sign off, say, yep, that looks great, anything in your way, how can I help? And you still have all the autonomy and freedom to get done what you need to get done, but now at least we've identified if there's anything that's going to be spillover, that you're just 
there's no reasonable way for you to finish in a week's time. And so that schedule syncing process is very, very important. We either do it once a week, if, the, if we know our week is pretty predictable, like on a more of a maker schedule, or you know, that's, this is, should be kind of the function of a stand-up meeting where we do this kind of thing every day. If your schedule changes every day, well, then you may want to do a schedule sync as frequently as your schedule changes, so up to once a day. But most people find that you know, once a week is plenty. Hmm. That's interesting. And, you know, we talked a little bit about, or you talked about how technology is not to blame, but has it changed the way we focused? I think it definitely has changed because we haven't yet adapted. That throughout the history of mankind, whenever there is a technological revolution, there's always an adjustment phase. The philosopher Paul Virilio said that when you invent the ship, you invent the shipwreck. And so what's the solution to shipwrecks? Is it you know, banning ships? <laughs> no. Is it going back to the days before ships? No. It's about building better ships. But that means that there's this adjustment phase where we have to figure out how to use the, the technology appropriately, which means we do two things. We either adapt our behaviors to these technologies to make sure that we can use them in a productive manner without the harm done by them. And we adopt new technologies to fix the bad aspect of the last generation of technology. So absolutely, technology today is designed to be engaging, right? Whether it's social media or, you know, your television, the news, all of these things, old tech, new tech, doesn't matter. Anybody who's an attention merchant, whether that attention merchant is the New York Times or Fox News or CNN or Facebook or Instagram or Reddit or Pinterest, all of these people make money from selling attention. And so that, that is a very profitable business model. It's not a new business model by any means, but what we need to recognize is that there's an adjustment phase whenever the technology changes and now we need to adapt. We need to find new rules around it. So certainly, you know, one thing that kills me when I go into companies and I, I work with folks to help them make their products more engaging and better is I'll sit around the table and we have this big expensive design review meeting and somebody at the table decides it's a good time to check their email on their phone. That would have been a problem before cell phones. Clearly, the, the phone is in their hands. Now, who's to blame? Is it Apple who made the phone that's to blame? Or is it the jerk who hasn't gotten the memo that, you know what, if we're going to have a meeting in the real world, put away your goddamn phone if we're going to meet? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's a cultural problem. Just like, you know, when I was growing up, I, I some of my first memories are in the mid-'80s. And I remember in the mid-'80s, we had ashtrays all over our house. Now, my dad had quit smoking years ago. My mom never smoked. And yet we had ashtrays in the house. Why? Because back in the mid-1980s, if somebody came to your house, back when the smoking rate was around uh, 60% of U.S. adults, today it's 16%, people would come to your house and they would just expect to smoke in your living room. Can you imagine if someone came to your workplace or your living room and decided to light up a cigarette? Are you kick them out? They wouldn't be friends anymore, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm amazed that you had 16% still today. Yeah, it's only, right, exactly. I don't get it either. But what's changed? Okay, there's been regulatory changes, but there's not one law on any books that says you can't smoke in someone's living room. What's changed? What's changed is that we have adopted what Paul Graham called social antibodies. People have learned that there's an appropriate and inappropriate place to do certain behaviors, and that's exactly what we're learning with these technologies. So to answer your question, have they changed our behaviors? Absolutely. Can we change them even further to serve us as opposed to us serving them? Absolutely. I'm thinking about that that guy in your meeting, the jerk, right? And he's he's checking his email during the expensive design yeah, meeting. I hate that guy. <laughs> but is that also because he's bored? Is that yes. like his mechanism for perfect you know, insight, removing discomfort? Perfect insight. So it's it's interesting you mentioned that because there's actually a section in the book, a whole chapter in the book about 
how to hack back meetings. That the reason we check technology so many times in meetings is because we call so many stupid, pointless meetings <laughs> where people are sitting around saying, this is not productive. They're stressed. They feel anxiety. When they feel anxiety and stress, that's, those are internal triggers that feel uncomfortable. So they want to do something more productive. And can you blame them? If you called a stupid meeting that didn't need to happen, you deserve people to use their technology uh, in the middle of the meeting. But we also need to make sure, in addition to making sure we don't call stupid meetings that don't need to happen, we also need to set some ground rules. Because for many people, it's too tempting. It's too hard for them, especially when, and this, is, this goes back to those rules at Slack, the third rule around that management needs to show people what being indistractable is all about. In my experience, nine times out of 10, that person in the back of the room who's using the phone in the middle of the meeting is the hippo, the highest paid person, right? That's typically who does it because they haven't gotten the memo yet that that's a rude thing to do. And they don't have the kind of consequences of someone who's more junior and who knows it's a rude behavior. So I recommend that if we are going to meet in the physical world, we have to be present both in body and mind. And that means that we should only have one device per meeting. That if you know one device to take notes, to project on a screen, and then everybody else needs to be present both in, in body and mind. And you know what? That's what pencil and paper and pens are for and sticky notes. <laughs> we don't all need to be our devices checking email. Because here's what always happens, right? That one dude or gal who's checking email invariably will pipe up and say, sorry, I, I was doing something else. What, what are we talking about again? <laughs> and then we waste all this time getting them up to speed. Or even worse... They just shut down and they act like what they know what's going on and they have no idea because they haven't been paying attention. And that, so what does that do? That makes the meetings even more boring for everybody else, which makes everybody want to check tech more. And so that's, you're, you're absolutely identified. It's, it's about these internal triggers and it's about taking steps to make sure that we make the kind of meetings that don't necessitate us being constantly distracted. I like it. So, I mean, when you think about apps that promise productivity like Slack, it's, it's just a question of making sure they're applied and used in the right way. That's right, because at Slack, they use it very well. <laughs> they don't have this problem of distraction. It's not the technology. It's about how it's used, and it's about the context of what type of cultural context, what kind of organization it's used in. Mm. And some of that probably moves to meeting structure, too. Like, going back to that meeting, I was... I was just thinking about how we stretched out one of our planning sessions to multiple days. Mm -hmm. And the great thing about that is there's more breaks. Mm. And because there was more breaks, I think people were less on their devices during the actual sessions feeling yeah. like there's something they had to get to. Right, right. And then there, there's a few other criteria I put in the book that I recommend for meetings. One is that if we are going to have a meeting, we need to understand what meetings are for. That in fact the research shows that meetings should not be meetings in large groups should not be for brainstorming. Meetings are for consensus building. Consensus building. It's a big difference between brainstorming and consensus building. Brainstorming is best done in actually it turns out by yourself, one person, or two people. That's the best combo for brainstorming. That's where you get the best results. You bring those back to the team and you share your ideas. Because what tends to happen when we have, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten, fifteen people in a room brainstorming. You know what happens. The loudest person speaks, right? And it's typically a white male that dominates the conversation. That's the fact of life these days. And so it's much better. We have much better results when people do some thinking on their own first and bring those results back to the table. So this is what they do at Amazon. You can't call a meeting at Amazon unless you have an agenda and a briefing document. And so that briefing document forces the person who calls the meeting to take a few minutes 
and think through the problem on their own. As opposed to, I, I don't know if you've seen this, and I'm, in my corporate life, I saw this all too often. People call meetings because they either want to hear themselves think or they don't want to think about the problem and want other people to, to think for them. Whereas if, you, if this is important, think about it for yourself for a little bit, right? Do a little bit of analysis. Give us your perspective so that we can, again, back to the goal of meeting, build consensus around your perspective in this meeting or tell you what you might have missed and you should go and explore a little further. Mm-hmm. That's, that's how we reduce the number of meetings. We, we add a bit of friction to calling a meeting, not because, oh, I don't want to think for myself or I want, to, I want you all to hear me lecture you. No, we do it because it's about consensus building. So I've thought about the problem. I'm giving you a briefing document. I have an agenda and I know where I want this to go. And you know what? With no agenda, no briefing document, no meeting. Yeah, yeah, I can see a, a lot of value in that. And there's a lot of meetings, too, that are just status reports, right? And, and the, that's what a tool like Slack is great for. <laughs> we, don't, we can read those status reports, right? We don't need a meeting to have a, a town crier tell us what we could read on a piece of paper or on email. Yeah, or go around the room and there's six of us all reading our current status just so everyone knows. That's a kind of, frankly, if you call those kind of meetings, you deserve for someone to check email while, while you're wasting their time doing that. Absolutely. Got me thinking, too, about the brainstorming process. Is that one or two people that's ideal for brainstorming? Right. So is there you, a preference between one or two? Or It depends on your, your style, right? One, I think a scarce commodity these days is time to think. Mm-hmm. And we have to, if we really start with brass tacks here, what do we as knowledge workers do? What's our output, right? You know, if, you, if you're a baker, you know your output. You make bread. If you're a car washer, your output is clean cars, as knowledge workers, what's our output? What do we actually do? Our output is creative solutions to hard problems. That's what we do. And you know what? You can't come up with creative solutions to hard problems unless you have time to think. To think! <laughs> we don't, I mean, it seems obvious. But, but we don't do it. Absolutely. We, we, why? Because we our entire day is booked with reacting to stuff, right? Reacting to meetings, reacting to emails. And there's no time for reflecting. And we need that time for reflection to come up with good solutions. And part of it is sitting down, you know, I, I like to think when I write. So I'll write, 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 write. I won't publish the vast majority of what I write. That's my thinking process. But some people like to draw things out on paper. But that process, that brainstorming process, is, is something we first need to do on our own, maybe with a partner, and then bring it back to an, a group meeting where then we can take turns around the table with people's ideas and give people equal time and equal voice as opposed to, well, who's got a good idea? I do, says the loud person in the room. I do, says the person who gets paid the highest salary. And then everyone's forced to listen to them and not share their own good ideas. Hmm. So no brainstorming during meetings, no status updates, just about building consensus. Yep. Come into them with a, an agenda and a point of view. That's right. The, the one kind of exception, even though these are also about building consensus as well, are these meetings where we get together to discuss our problems, to air our laundry, right? So that's the kind of place where actually we want, so at BCG, I talk about this case study at Boston Consulting Group, where they had this challenge for consultants at Boston Consulting Group, which was, what would it take to give everyone on this team one night off per week? They called it PTO, predictable time off. Could we do that? At first, people said, oh, no, no, we can't do that. We're in the client services business. Our, 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 our team is geographically uh, diverse, so you know, they need us at all times, day and night. So no, no way we could do that. And then they said, well, what if 
a client came to us and said, hey, set up a structure for us so that everyone can get one night off per week. And that, that was their demand. They're going to pay us here. You're a consulting firm. Fix this problem. Give everyone one night off per week. Well, of course they could do it. And the way that once they started talking about this problem, like what was preventing them from doing what they said they would do, it was just a, a, a problem that needed a solution like any problem needs a solution. So sometimes we do want to give people the ability, and this is also around consensus building, of having a safe place. That's where this idea of psychological safety is so important. A safe place to air their concerns so that they can say, hey, here's what's preventing me from taking predictable time off, or here's what's preventing me from fixing this problem. That environment of psychological safety is, is critically important. Hmm. I like it. So let's talk about people's responsibilities. And started from a, a, a thought around behavioral design thinking, right? It's, which is really powerful for product managers and you know, Hooked and, and other resources have taught people how to build habit-forming products. But it also means a level of responsibility that product managers have now. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to creating these habit-forming products that have this power to be able to distract their users, do product managers have a social responsibility? And is there something inherent to the technology or can they just kind of say, hey, you should be using this in these ways? Yeah, so, so the, even in Hook, there's a whole section called the morality of manipulation, where I talk about this question of ethics and how do we apply these behavioral design tactics in the right way. Now, in Hooked, it was really geared to individual designers. How do you decide how to allocate your human capital, you know, your limited time on Earth? How do you decide how to spend your time? And, there, and there's a two-by-two two there that you can use to answer if it's worth applying these techniques, if you're applying them appropriately, in an ethical manner. But that was something that you have to ask yourself. What I think you're getting at is more of the company level, the product level. And so that's something I, I struggled with after I wrote Hooked because the, the answer I provided wasn't, wasn't good enough for me. And so I asked around and I, I wanted to replace Google's don't be evil motto, which they don't even use anymore. But the reason I never like don't be evil is because what is evil? It's completely subjective, right? You can convince yourself and warp your brain into thinking that, no, this isn't evil. This is perfectly fine because it's such a subjective, squishy term. So I don't like, don't be evil. I wanted something better with more teeth. I wanted something that a product manager could raise their hand in the middle of a meeting and say, you know what, guys, this is sketchy. I'm not sure I, I like this. What do we do about it? And don't be evil doesn't cut it, uh, especially when you, know, you have to talk truth to power. That's something that you know, is very difficult for folks to do. So if it's not, don't be evil. What is it? So I talked to ethicists, and they said, well, why not the golden rule? Right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But that's also not good enough, because what's to say that we as the product designers know better than our users? Right? If, something, if I want something done to me and I'm perfectly okay with it, what's to say that I'm okay with, with, with that our users okay with it being done to them? Right? They should be the, the ultimate arbiter. It shouldn't be do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's do unto others as they want done to themselves. That should be the bar. So that didn't work out. Then I talked to the lawyers, and the lawyers said, well, just disclose everything. Right? As long as we have disclosure, as long as you tell people everything they need to know, well, then you're fine. But this is a cover-your-ass move. Right? This is why we have these terms of service with ridiculously long-term you know, statements that nobody reads, and everybody knows that nobody reads it. And they just click automatically because nobody has time to actually read that junk. So that's not high enough bar either. I think that's, that's a lazy way out. So what I came up with is called the regret test. And the regret test says that we only build things at our company that the user would want to do 
if they knew everything that we as the designers knew. Now, why is this formulated in this format? Because if you think about it, there's two types of behavioral design. There's persuasion and coercion. Persuasion is getting people to do things they want to do. And that's wonderful, right? If you think about how Hooked has been used, it's been used by companies, you know, Kahoot, that makes educational software to build in-classroom habits for kids. Uh, Fitbod that builds exercise habits, great use of habits. For God's sakes, the one case study I put in Hooked was not Facebook or Instagram or Pinterest. It was the Bible, <laughs> right? Like that was the habit-forming product. The only chapter dedicated to one case study in the whole book, the Bible. So there are lots of examples of using habit-forming technologies to help people form healthy habits, healthy routines. That's the idea. And I would call that persuasion. And that's great, right? Getting someone into the habit of using SaaS software that improves their organization and their quality of life because they don't have to use shitty, hard-to-use software is wonderful. The opposite of persuasion is coercion. Persuasion is helping people do things they want to do. Coercion is getting people to do things they don't want to do. Now, what word separates the difference between persuasion and coercion? One word, regret. Regret. It's ethically imperative to make sure that our users don't regret using our product. That's how we test if it was coercive. And it's a good business practice, right? People aren't dummies. They're not puppets on a string. If they use a, a product that they regret using, guess what? They stop using it, they use it less, or they use your competitor's product, right? So we have an incentive, a business imperative, to make sure that we are not coercing people. That's a very short-sighted business strategy. And so the test is, when we encounter one of these potentially you know, questionable tactics, we can raise our hand in a meeting and say, you know what, that sounds good, but I'd really like to run a regret test. Can we do that? How do we run a regret test? Well, we've been doing this forever. Right? It's called the usability study. We bring in a few people. We show them the interaction design. We show them the flow. And in this case, we tell them exactly what's going to happen. And we ask them, hey, knowing everything that you now know, that we tell them what's going to happen, would you regret using this product? Would you regret this interaction? And if the answer is no, that sounds terrific. It's exactly what I would want to happen. Well, then great. We passed. But if a significant number, let's say we test 10 people and whatever our standard is, 2 out of 10, 9 out of 10, say, no, I actually, I would not have used this product had I known what you're going to do, well, then we fail a regret test. Very simple, very cheap, very effective. Very rarely do we actually need to do it. Because even the threat of using the regret test kills the use of any kind of dark patterns or deceptive tactics before they ever get in front of customers. It's hmm. awesome. I like that approach. So this is great. Thank you for being here, Nir. And uh, your book is now... Available, I guess, everywhere you can buy books. Yeah. Um, there's also, I just want to let folks know that there are a bunch of, of free tools and resources, a lot of things I couldn't put in the book, a lot of uh, extra information that's, that's super helpful. There's an 80-page workbook that you can download for free at indistractable.com. It's I-N, the word distract, I-N, distract, A-B-L-E, indistractable.com. Awesome. Well, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com, an online magazine by and for product people. <laughs>